<clears throat> years ago, uh, I read a book. I was trying to remember. I think it's been almost 10 years ago, a book um, called In Conversation uh, with Bono. If you know who Bono is, uh, depending on your age, you may think it shares husband, but that's not who I'm talking about. Uh, Bono uh, is the lead singer of a, of a rock band called U2, and he's been around for a long time. Uh, I read the book just because I've been a big fan for a long time, but I read the book partly because he's an interesting guy, and he, he's actually a Christian, and he's pretty outspoken about it. And in this book, all it was was a long-form interview with him and a reporter, and they talk about all sorts of different things. And I went back, and I was rereading this week his conversation with this guy and, and uh, at one point in the book he just presents the gospel the guy's asking him about his faith and he talks about Jesus and what he's done for us and he, he gives a pretty good conception of the gospel and, and what it is and what Christ has done and the guy says to him this is a great idea such great hope is wonderful even though it's close to lunacy in my view and then he says Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers but son of God isn't that far-fetched and so this is what the reporter says to Bono but what I want you to hear is his answer the way he answers this guy he says that seems great and it's great that you have hope and you're, that you're holding to that but it seems kind of crazy to me and he says isn't that far-fetched that Jesus is the son of God and Bono says no it's not far-fetched to me look this secular response to the Christ story always goes like this he was a great prophet obviously a very interesting guy had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm just a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm just a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We're okay with that. We had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M word because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and to set you free from these creeps, but I'm actually the Messiah. And at this point, everyone starts to gaze at their shoes and say, oh, no, he's going to keep saying this. And you're left with this. Either Christ was who he said he was. The Messiah or a complete nutcase. And I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. He had king of Jews on his head and they were putting him on the cross and he was saying, OK, martyrdom. Here we go. I can take it. And I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase for me, that's far fetched. And what he does so well there is he takes C.S. Lewis's old argument of lunatic, liar, or Lord. C.S. Lewis used to say Jesus doesn't give you that he's just a good teacher. He doesn't leave you with he's just a prophet that had some things, some good things to say. He pushes you past that and says, no, I am God and you come to God through me in no other way. So I like the way Bono tells that because he does a good job of encapsulating that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Jesus doesn't let you have that, that he's just a good teacher or he's just a prophet. And, and I start there because really John 8 unfolds just like that. Jim just read us a good portion of it. But in John chapter 8, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles and he stands up in the temple and he, and he speaks out and he says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And then he goes on to unfold throughout the chapter of who he is and what it means to come to him. And if you read through the whole of John chapter eight, it it goes something like this. He says, I'm the light of the world. And they say, says who? How can you say that? And he says, I can because I know God and God knows me and he sent me. And he starts to make some pretty bold proclamations and it starts to upset the people. And he says, I'm not of this world. Believe in me or you will die in your sins. You are slaves to sins and you will die that way unless you believe in me. And everybody starts to go, whoa, this is getting pretty serious. Who do you think you are? And then he says, well, soon enough, I will be lifted up and then you will see. Jesus talking about his crucifixion. He uses that phrase a couple times in John's gospel. When I am lifted up. And then he says, abide in my word, obey me and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then they get really upset and they say, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon which is probably the biggest insult that Jews could lob at anyone. They hated Samaritans. Saying he has a demon is saying all these works you're doing are actually by the power of the devil and not God. And so they start to attack him. And they say, we're good Jews and we follow Abraham. And how can you say this? And he says, if you followed Abraham, you would listen to me because Abraham listened to God. He heard the word of God and he listened and obeyed. And I'm telling you, I've come from God and I am God. And if you knew that, you'd follow me. And they get really upset and they go, how in the world can you speak for Abraham? You're not 50 years old. And at the end of John chapter eight, Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. And in doing so, he takes the covenant name of God and he applies it to himself. And he says, I have existed eternally. And that's what you get at the end of the chapter when it says they picked up stones. They were ready to stone him for blasphemy because he says, I am God in the flesh. So I started with that quote from Bono because what he encapsulates so well is the way he tells that story. It's pretty spot on to what happens in John chapter eight. And so here we are following the life of Jesus. And we've been saying that it breaks up into three years, the year of introduction, the year of his popularity, and then the year of opposition. And this break here in John takes us from that year of popularity to year of opposition. As Jesus begins to clarify and make more and more clear that he is God and he has come to do what no man can do. And it is only by faith in him. And he says that so clear and so boldly. And people get upset. And it's it's the way Bono says it. They start looking at their shoes and going, oh, no, he's going to keep saying this. And so as we start, I just want to start here with this. That Jesus says so clearly that he is God and you come to him as such. And so if you come in to the church or you come here, you've grown up in the church or you would call yourself a Christian, you're familiar with the Christian faith, you're you're familiar or comfortable in the church and you like Jesus's ideas and you think he's a good teacher or he's worth listening to, but you don't see him as God. You are not coming to him for who he is. He says he alone is God. He is our only hope in life and death. There is no other way. And he says that over And over and over again, that apart from him, you are a slave to sin and you will die in your sin. And if that is the case, you will be put away from eternity. 
from the relationship that you were created for. Jesus comes to offer his grace that we don't deserve. None of us deserves eternal life. None of us deserves the forgiveness of God, but yet God is rich in mercy. And because of the great love in which he's loved us, even when we were sinners, he died for us. And that is the heart of everything that Jesus says. He doesn't say I'm a teacher that you just take some of my sayings and apply them to your life and will make your life better. He never calls us to that. He never says I'm a prophet that has a word from God. He says, I am God and I'm the only way that you can be reconciled to the relationship you were made for. And so I want us to be as clear as we can as a church. We're not gathering around just the teachings of Jesus or a good man. Or we're not putting these things in our life and picking and choosing which ones we take and which ones we throw out. And maybe some will apply and some we won't. We're saying he is a God. He is the authority. He is the logos, the truth that defines all of reality. And that's exactly who Jesus says he is over and over. And I hope that you affirm that and you know that. I know for many of you, you go, yeah, of course. (laughs) Why do you have to even say that? I'm with you. And I know that to be true. And that's what unites us together in Jesus, that he is our savior. But even if we do say that's true, and I know many of us affirm that and we say, yes, that is true. And I hold to Jesus. But I think as we read through John chapter eight, a lot of times we miss the fullness of what it means to live in the light of the world. The light that gives us life, that we profess that, but then we still have unbelief in different areas of our life. And we're not coming to Jesus as he is. And we're coming to him in unbelief. And I'm not saying you're not a believer. Every single one of us has unbelief at different areas in our life. That we're not fully grasping who Jesus is. And what you see laid out in this passage, and this is what I want us to think about this morning, is that there's things that keep us from the fullness of who we are in Christ and experiencing that. And I think you see that in this conversation. A lot of these people that are talking to Jesus, it says believed in him. As he was saying these things in verse 30, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And they seem to have some faith, but they're missing pieces. And sadly, I think we can do the same thing. And so what I want us to do is just to think about what it shows us here about how we miss living in the fullness of who we are in Christ. And then what Jesus says about how we can live in the fullness of what we are in him. And so let's begin with how we miss it. You know, this whole context of going back and forth and Jesus is clarifying and he's pushing them. He's calling them to go deeper, to understand, to wrestle with what he's saying. And it ends with probably his most clear assertion that he is God at the end of this chapter up to this point. Maybe John four with the woman at the well, he says to her, I am he. And he said different things that are pointing us to this. But here he can't say it any more directly. And he's telling us that he is God. But if we were to summarize what they're missing as you read through this chapter, I'd summarize it this way. And then we'll kind of dig in and look at each one. But the first part I would say is there is an arrogance of a religious spirit in the people that he's talking to. And what I mean by that is the false belief that I can contribute something to my salvation. 
As Jesus corrects them and he teaches them and he pushes them deeper, their answer is, well, we're good Jews. We're sons of Abraham. How dare you say that we're slaves to sin? We've never been slaves to anyone. And there's this arrogance of we're okay on our own and we don't need you to do anything for us. Or we can evaluate what you're saying and who you are because we're good people. The arrogance of a religious spirit, which then leads to seeing Jesus not as our savior, but just a teacher or just a spiritual guru or just someone who gives us advice that we either take or we deny based on how we feel about it. And that's exactly what starts to happen here. And when we operate that way, we begin to see God's word that way. Instead of desperate need to hear from God and what he says, I stand over God's word and go, ah, maybe that's not true. Or maybe I should leave that part out. And they're starting to do that very thing here. He's calling them to what it looks like to follow God's word and they're not having it. But then once that takes place, that spiritual arrogance that leads to Jesus just being a teacher and I stand over God's word and then I begin to live in my flesh. My flesh being my sinful nature rather than what God says. It's what I say. And when that happens, I become a slave to sin. Begin to operate that way by my flesh, walking in the darkness. And then I become really defensive whenever somebody calls me on it. And that's exactly what happens here. Jesus will say to them and they'll get really defensive. And so I want you to think through those different Areas that we can miss the fullness of what God calls us into. And so start with that idea of an arrogance of a religious spirit. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him. If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples and you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that? You say we will become free. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you will seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. And so Jesus is calling them that are saying they're believing to discipleship. He says, you abide in me and you be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We don't need to be set free. We're already free. So we're sons of Abraham. I think what they're saying there in the context is not literal freedom because they're actually under the oppression of Rome at the moment. But they're talking about spiritually. We're good Jews. What do you mean we're slaves? We're sons of Abraham. And they're pushing back to what Jesus says and what happens when we begin to operate in that way, the arrogance of a religious spirit. What happens is we come to Jesus as you're a good teacher that can maybe add some things to my life, but I evaluate and I don't need you to free me. And that is a misunderstanding of our place apart from God. Apart from the grace of God through faith in what Jesus has done, the Bible says that you are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
That's the reality that the Bible presents to us. And so when we start to slip into this thinking that I add something to my salvation, we're deceived. Here's what you add to your salvation. The equation. What you add and what you bring to your salvation is your sin. That's it. Jesus does all the rest. And when we think that it's partly what I do versus what Jesus has done and we operate that way, we're in a slavery. Right? Jesus says here, slaves versus sons, right? You catch that in verse 34. Truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And he throws that out. Just one verse. It's real quick. But his audience would have known what he was talking about. He's talking about a Roman household. You have the, the father of the house, the one who owes all the stuff, and then he's got children and his sons and his family, and then he has slaves or, or hired workers that are working. And he says, if you think you contribute to your salvation by what you do, you're not a son but a slave. And they would have known what he was talking about. A slave is there working for their worth to be part of, but they're still an employee. A son is the one that's going to inherit all there is. The son will always be there. The slave will just be there working. And there's a difference. And he says, if you think that you contribute to your salvation by what you do, you're a slave. And I want you to think about that even greater in spiritual terms. If you believe that you somehow can do something to be perfect, you're striving after something that you will never, ever be able to do. That if you think I can save myself from the slavery of my sin by what I do, Jesus says you're a slave. And you can't do it. And you're deceived. And they go, but we're good Jews. And he's pointing to them that that doesn't work. You can never do it. That we're hopelessly lost if we think we can earn our salvation. We're hopelessly lost if we think Jesus does most of it and then I do the rest. Jesus does all of it. It's all by what he does, by grace, through faith. We just contribute our sin. And when we slip into that type of thinking, it causes all sorts of problems of walking in the fullness of what Christ has called us to. And that arrogance of a religious spirit can be very subtle in a whole lot of ways. We can start to say, uh, even as a believer, we can slip into that. I'm saved by grace, through faith. It's Jesus and nothing else. And I'm really glad I'm not like those people over there. Now that I'm a Christian and I'm following Christ and I'm reading my Bible and I'm spending time with people and I'm looking to serve and I'm doing these things, I'm sure glad I'm not down in the gutter like that guy over there. Right? That's the religious spirit. I'm getting my identity by what I do rather than whose I am. I'm forgetting that I desperately need the grace of God in my life, just like every other person I meet. And we can so subtly start to slip into that. Or you wake up one day and you have a great quiet time and you spend time with the Lord and you're you're in that and you're spending that. And then you're like, man, God must really love me today. Right? Now, you may not say that, you may not articulate it that way, but it's the deceitfulness of our heart. 
or you blow it. You have a terrible day and you oversleep and you you get on to your kids and you lose it with your wife and you're struggling and you're like, man, God's really disappointed in me today. I don't think he loves me quite as much as yesterday. You see how that's dependent on me and my performance and I'm making it all about me. That's that religious spirit that it all comes back to me. And that can be so subtle, even as a believer. And it misses the glory of God's grace in our life when we begin to operate that way. And so we miss it by an arrogance of a religious spirit. And these people have it here. But then not only that, when we have this arrogance of this religious spirit, it can lead to not being dependent on God's word. I think I'm pretty good or I add to it or I'm a good person and I've got it and things are going well. And we can easily put our Bible aside and be like, "Ah, I've got it. I'm okay." And we start to miss it. We start to miss how reliant we are on God's word. Luke and I got to go this week with some other pastors through Acts 29, and we met with uh, a pastor in Roswell. His name's Crawford Loritz, and he's the pastor at Fellowship Bible Church. And he is a dear, sweet, godly man that loves the Lord. He's been a pastor longer than I've been alive. And I sat there and listened to him, and I wanted to write down every single thing he said. Literally. I was trying to seriously scribble down notes. So those people that it's like the wisdom is palpable. You're just like, ah, I heard like a hundred times as he talked, all these friends that are pastors and churches, he'd say something, but we go, oh, that's so good. Just pretty much everything he said the whole time. But one of the things he said that really stuck with me is he said, we really struggle in our churches. And one of the things that you will have to contend with in ministry in your own heart is we don't believe that the Bible is the context of our life. I thought, wow, he said that. That I think I can get by without it. And I forget that I exist because God says so. I most literally am here now on this planet that is created because God says so. By his word. And he holds all things together by the word of his power, it says in Hebrews. And as he said that, I started to think about that. That so often we don't operate that way. The arrogance of thinking that I've got it together and I don't need it. And he said, what happens when we don't see the Bible is the context of our life. The Bible becomes boring. I don't really need to spend time seeking the Lord. That I don't really need him to stand over me. I think you see this happening with these people here as they're talking to Jesus. And they're pushing back and they're missing what he's saying. Jesus says, whoever is of God hears the word of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Whoa. Or when he says, if you... Abide in my word. You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word and how often we struggle and we limp through life, not living in the fullness of what Jesus has called us to. And all the while our Bible sitting on the shelf like I don't know what the problem is. Well, first of all, we're totally ignoring what Jesus says. You abide in my word. 
then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And our arrogance that I can do this without him. And we can't do it without him. We literally exist because he says so. And so we miss it from the arrogance of our religious spirit. We miss it because we're not coming to God's word. And when that happens, sadly, we begin to judge by our flesh. Now, as a Christian, you become a Christian and God gives you the Holy Spirit in your life. And he begins to remake you from the inside out. It's sanctification and in that process. But our flesh still exists. Our flesh is our sinful patterns and our way of thinking that believes the arrogance of a religious spirit that it's all about me and what I do. And it begins with me rather than with God. And we will fight that our entire lives. It doesn't just go away in an instant, even though we have the spirit. But when we have this arrogance of a religious spirit, even as a believer, even as the spirit in us, and we never open the Bible and we're not spending time in it and we're not seeking him, then we start to walk by our flesh rather than by the spirit. And I want you to think about why that is. How do we know the voice of the spirit in our life? Through God's word. As we grow in his word and a knowledge of who he is and understanding, we better discern what his voice is like. And God speaks to us and leads us and guides us. But when we are operating in the arrogance of a religious spirit and we're not spending time in God's word, there's a scary thing that can happen. We can begin to attribute our flesh to God's spirit. I think it looks like this. And what happens is I hear people say that and they'll operate that way and they'll say those things and they'll be saying things that are in direct contradiction with God's word. And that's a scary place to be. To be thinking you're following the spirit of God and you're doing the exact opposite of what he says. And that's exactly what's happening in this, right? These are really religious people that are looking at Jesus and they're judging him. And they're saying, you have a demon and you're a Samaritan and you're not from God and we follow Abraham and we know the Bible. And God himself is standing in front of them. And he says to him. In verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. You're judging according to your sinful ways, not what God's word says. And what happens when we do that in our culture, and it's happening a lot right now. People attribute things to the Holy Spirit that are in direct contradiction with what God's word says. And then they do that and then they go and they go on the Internet or they open their Bible or they go to their their uh, Bible study or the person they want to listen to. And they'll find someone that will explain God's word out of context completely void of what it actually says and go, look right here. That's what the Bible says. we will go, oh, all right. Yes, we can do exactly what we want to do and we can even justify it from the Bible. It's a scary place to be. But it happens a lot. So I don't proof text. Proof text is just grabbing bits and pieces out of verses. See, it says right here. You read the context, it says the exact opposite. That's why it's important that we read straight through books of the Bible, that we take the whole context. We read the whole passage. We put it in the context of everything that God says. 
because we can so quickly distort it and twist it and then not even see it when we're walking by our flesh. The arrogance of a religious spirit leads to thinking we can do it without God's word, that we can stand over it. We begin to operate in our flesh and then we become we begin to call things that are sin good. We begin to celebrate things that God says are sin. The spirit's leading us. And then we become slaves to sin. It's exactly what it's talking about here. They become slaves to sin. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You know what he's saying? Abraham, Abraham heard God speak to him and it didn't make any sense to him. And it's like, I mean, really? He's living in one place and God says, pick up everything that you've known and move and go to a place I will show you. And Abraham goes, OK. He hears God and he obeys. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the same thing because I'm standing right in front of you. Right. And he calls them to the truth. And he says, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Do you understand what they're saying? They go, we know where you came from, Jesus. Know who your mom was. We know the stories that were there. Right. They're, they're denying the virgin birth and they're saying Mary was immoral. And they're lobbing those things. But isn't that what we do when we get called on our sin? If you become a slave to sin and you're harboring things in your life and you're walking away from God and then somebody goes, that's not what God's word says. We become defensive. At least I'm not sexually immoral. Right. That's what they do here. We know where you came from. We deflect. We push back and we become defensive. Don't tell me. And that's exactly what happens here. And so when we are walking by our flesh and we become slaves to sin, the next step is we become really defensive about it. Don't tell me. And that's exactly what you see unfolding here is Jesus, the truth, the speaking truth to people that are operating in the flesh. That are missing the very words of God, that are attributing things to God's spirit that are not God's spirit. And he calls them on it and they get really defensive. That's the world we live in. In so many ways. So what's the answer? How do we get out of this? They cannot bear to hear his words. Well, the answer is wonderfully, thankfully, Jesus himself. That's what he's saying all the way through this. And every part of it. Verse 28, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the father's taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You know what he's talking about? When I am lifted up, you will know he's talking about his crucifixion. Does this a couple different times. You see it with Nicodemus. He's not understanding what's going on. And he says, when the son of man is lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness, then you're going to see. He's pointing to his crucifixion. 
In verse 31, when he says, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or verse 36, when he says, if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And he's pointing all of it to the cross. What does he mean when he says you abide in me and you trust me and you will be free? See, the the answer to the arrogance of a religious spirit is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, when Jesus goes and he willingly lays his life down, it shows us so clearly the magnitude of our sin. How far we are from God in and of ourselves and what we can do on our own, which is nothing. And the cross magnifies that because Jesus himself, God in the flesh, had to come and lay down his life to fix this. And it shows us how serious sin is. That we can't do this. That is only what Jesus does and nothing else. And it's radically humbling Because it shows us that the God of the universe had to lay down his life that we could be saved. Do you see? He didn't just say, follow my teaching. He said, I'm here to do what you could never do for you. It's all there is. And it cuts right through the arrogance of a religious spirit. I'll just take his teaching and apply it to my life and then I'll be good. Well, then he didn't need to die. He didn't have to lay his life down if that were the case. That's why he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you'll know. Then you'll see the fullness of what I've come to do. Then you'll begin to understand what is at stake here. But when we do, and when we see it, it cuts through all of this. Because when Jesus lays his life down and he takes our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness, you are no longer a slave, but you're a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And he loves you completely and totally. And you can rest. You're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave to your works. You're not a slave to your failures. You're not a slave to your past. You're not a slave to all the ways you've blown it because he's done it and he's finished it. And we get to rest. Let's go. Thank God. I'm now a son. And it's all because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. And I get to get off the roller coaster. Believing the lie that it's all about me and how good I am and how I blew it and what I'm doing. It's all about Jesus. And when that happens. And the more that we grow in the grace of the glory of what Christ has done, then his word no longer becomes this thing that I can do life without. No, I can't. I'm alerted that I am in desperate need of him speaking truth over my life every second of every day that I ever have breath. Doesn't make any sense any other way. And he rescues me from myself. And as I read his word, he begins to show me that my flesh often betrays me. What I think is not really the truth of God's word. And he reshapes me. 
And he alerts me to his spirit and what, it sound, what his voice sounds like because I see it in his word. And what happens is it minimizes me. Thankfully. We get to get off the roller coaster of works and continue in humility and the need for grace every day. It's the only way that I know how to be able to stand up and preach. If, if it was just some good teachings that we add to our life and then that's how we do it, I would be a colossal failure and I would have nothing to offer you. But thankfully, because it's completely and totally Jesus and nothing else. It's all I got. It's all Jesus. And he's done it. And he's completed it. And he is at work. And he's going to finish what he started. And he is God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is our only hope and life and death. And from here, as we look at his life, we're going to turn the corner the next couple of weeks. And he's going to show us that he's moving directly towards the cross because it all hinges on his finished work there. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of who you are. We thank you that it's completely and totally and fully what you've done for us, that you rescue us from ourselves. I thank you that in the the humbling reality of our sin is the glorious good news that despite our sinfulness, you love us, that you care enough to come to us to do what we could never do, that you call us into the fullness of walking with you that is so beautiful, that is so great, that is so much far more wonderful than anything that we could conjure in and of ourselves. Give us that vision. I pray that as we leave, that we would see you more fully in what you've done for us and that we would rest in your finished work. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.